Men and women are creatures of mental and emotional complexity, of swirling passions, hidden depths and unfathomable emotions. Writers down the ages have known this and created Anna Kareninas, Madame Bovary's and even Bridget Jones's, all exemplifying this inexhaustible, kaleidoscopic range of experiences. The trouble is, they're wrong. We're wrong in believing that such hidden depths really exist. That, at least, is the claim currently being made by the man sitting in front of me now. The mind is flat, according to Nick Chater, Professor of Behavioural Science here at Warwick Business School. And we have no hidden depths at all. That's the subject of his latest research and book, and Professor Chater joins me now for this Warwick Business School podcast. Professor Chater... That was a very brief attempt to pricey your work, um, but fill it out for me. Well, I think it's a pretty good start, actually. Uh, the, um, the the literary examples are, are particularly interesting, because when you think about literary characters, Anna Karenina or Madame Bovary, one has the sense that these are very rich characters. You feel they have enormous complexity um, and depth, and, and one could discuss them for hours. But if you actually look at what's in the text... Now, what's in the text is often surprisingly minimal. So with Anna Karenina, for example, even her physical description is extraordinarily uh, extraordinarily sparse, so you know pretty much nothing about her. In fact, even the colour of her hair I don't think is specified anywhere in Tolstoy's book. Um, but that's also true for her emotional character as well. So she does stuff, she says things from time to time, um, and that gives you a sparse sense of the kind of person she is, and from within which one can create all kinds of complexity, one can imagine all kinds of uh, ways of filling in the gaps. And indeed, this is one reason that literature is interesting because we can uh, take what's relatively skeletal uh, set of information and debate you know, was this her motivation in committing suicide or um, you know, what did she really feel about her love of Vronsky uh, was this true love or some kind of mad infatuation or you know, whatever aspect of the, uh, the the story you want to pick on one can pick that up and debate it and wonder about it and the illusion I think we have is that we think yes but if Anna Karenina were a real person the truth about these motives, these, the truth about her thinking, the truth about the way in which she was conceiving the world would all be definitively true one way or the other. And, and, and it would just all be in her head. If we only we could sort of read out what her brain was really uh, thinking, because she isn't a real person, but if she was a real person, if we could only look inside her brain and see what was going on, all those questions would be answered. And that's a complete fiction, I think. I think to, to Anna herself, if she were a real person, she'd be no, in no better position than we are to explain her behaviour. She'd give us contradictory interpretations of what she's doing or why she was acting as she was. Um, anybody asking her at the time or probing her brain or experimentally uh, testing her in any way at all would have no special privileged way of saying, actually, what you're really trying to do is this. It's all a matter of interpretation. We're interpreting each other all the time. We're interpreting fictional characters. We're also interpreting ourselves. Now, you're not primarily a literary theorist. You're a behavioural scientist. So how does that compare to the real world? Mm. One assumes we do have depth, but you, you would say no. Yes, I think the... Um we're very complicated, so I don't want to understate the sophistication of the human mind. In fact, we're far more complicated than, than any computer we can build. So one thing I'm actually quite interested in is um, how, to how, to, how one could build computational models that approximate human intelligence. And it's extremely hard to do this. And one reason it's hard to do it is because we're so unbelievably creative. So given fragments of information about a person, including ourselves, or fragments of visual information about a scene, we can see... Um, actions, agency, facial expressions, words, people, uh, a blooming, buzzing um, mass of complexity. And we can do that effortlessly and quickly. 
And the illusion we have, so that, that's remarkable. I mean, I don't want to downplay the astonishing creative abilities we have. But what we tend to do, instead of thinking this is an astonishing creative uh, ability that we're exemplifying, we tend to think, ah, I'm reading out what's in my head. So if you ask me, for example, um, you know, why I made a particular decision, I give you a, a, an explanation. And you might say, yes, but uh, it does that, is that quite right? Let me probe that a bit further. And then I'll give you a further explanation. And I can go on like this all day. And I can give you further explanations and further explanations. And one, one interpretation of what's going on is that I'm just looking inside my head and thinking, oh, yeah, I, I can see there's a thought there. I'm going to tell you about it. You, you've asked me another question. Oh, I've got a thought for that one too. And they're all sitting there, as it were, in a giant archive waiting to be uncovered. But in fact, I think it's much, um, well, in fact, there's lots of evidence to support this, but it's much more natural when one thinks about it to think, oh, no, hang on. We're creating this story as if we are filling out a fictional character. It just happens to be that character is our character. Now, that's the theory, but what's the evidence yes. for it? Why would you believe that? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. So, so one, which is rather nice, is that experiments on, on split-brain patients. So these are people who um, had severe epilepsy, and one strategy for dealing with severe epilepsy was to try to contain it within one half of the brain by sur surgically severing the connection between the two cortexes. So the, the large sort of folded area visible at the top of the brain is the, the cerebral cortex. It's split into two halves like a walnut. You cut through the, set, the connections between the two. Now, this means that you can um, probe, ask questions of, and get answers from different, the different halves of the brain independently. So as it happens, rather confusingly, the brain is cross-wired. So the, the left half of the brain controls the right hand and looks at the right-hand side of the world, and the right-hand uh, right half of the brain uh, controls the left-hand side of the world, your left arm, your left leg, and, and looks at the left-hand side of the world. I won't worry about that from, from now on, but it is rather confusing when you look at the, uh, the, the details of this story. So imagine you've got um, the ability to separately feed information in to one half or the other, Actually, it's if I want to tell the right half of the brain something, I feed it in with the with the left, um, and it's uh, the opposite for the other. And if I want to get information out, I can just ask questions by getting the right or left hand to to answer because they are connected to different halves of the brain. It came with the crossover wiring. So now this means that I can ask the left hand to do something. It'll do something. And then I can say, and then I can ask the right hand to do something, and it'll do something. Now, as it happens, though, only the left side of the brain is really in control of language. This is not, not, not perfectly true, but, but roughly speaking, most of the activity that's associated, most of the brain activity involved in language is on the left. So, for example, if you have severe damage to some parts of the left um, half of the brain, your language will be severely damaged, and that's much less true on the right-hand side. So this means that you can ask the left half of the brain to explain the behavior of either hand. And in the case of the right hand, because of this crossover business, the, in the case of the right hand, the left hemisphere um, actually is in contact with the relevant bit of brain that controls the right hand. So you might think, well, I can ask about the right hand. It will give me a sensible answer. So why did you act that way? Why did you pick that cup up? Why did you point to that um, picture? And the left hemisphere will tell you a nice story about it. But it, the weird thing is that if you get the, you, you instruct the left half of the, the uh, left hand to do something, that's controlled by the right half of the brain, then the, the language area has no idea what that's doing, doesn't have, understand it at all, has no connection. But it will still tell you a story about it. So off goes the left hand, points to something, picks something up, and the language system, the left hemisphere, will explain what's going on. Fluidly, happily, no, no sign of any difference with, with uh, the previous case, even though it can't possibly have any information because the... the, 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 the um, 
the uh, connections between the two halves of the brain have been cut. Not only that, the experimenter, by devious trickery, which would be too complex to go into in detail, the experimenters, uh, especially Mike, Michael Gizaniga, an American neuroscientist, did lots of clever studies where you cleverly trick the, uh, the, 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 the um, one half of the, the motor system, the, the left hand, to do something you know, a surprising way, and then you try to explain it, you ask the person to explain it, and they give you an explanation which you know is wrong because they can't possibly know about the trick. Um, uh, but out comes an explanation, just as happily as, as if you're explaining something you could understand. Before we move on, though, to what it is you do as a behavioural mm. scientist, let's stay with the fictional mm. sort of area. And, you know, if you're right about us not having hidden depths, then the great writers of all time, mm. from Homer to Shakespeare, from Milton to Tolstoy, have got it all wrong. Well, I don't think they have. So I think the um, we should think about... Uh, the the process of creating literature is very much a natural extension of the process of understanding and describing our own behaviour. And I think that's entirely a reasonable um, thing to do, even if what one's not doing is looking inside one's own mental depths to do it. So if I see my hand setting off and picking something up, it's not hardly a a remarkable creative act to think, I guess I was thirsty, look, I'm heading towards the cup of tea. Um, the illusion we have is thinking, no, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not watching myself and interpreting my behavior. I've got some sort of special direct way of looking inside of my motivations and saying, I wanted tea. That, that explains my, the fact that I'm moving in this way. In reality, it's all backwards. So we're observing our behavior and inferring, well, this must be what's going on because I, I guess this, make, you know, this would make sense of my behavior, just as if we're trying to understand um, somebody on television or just another person. We're using the same interpretive machinery. And, of course, that's what the great writers are doing, too. Um, of course, they're also creating the characters, but they're creating characters through their actions, through their behavior, so that we can interpret them. They're not really... It's a bit of a fiction, a bit of an illusion to, to, that I think we harbor, but shouldn't, that what they're doing is somehow penetrating the innermost psyche. But in the real flesh and blood world that you and I inhabit, you know, we're complex organisms wrestling with dilemmas, morally complex yeah. issues, yeah. let alone with dealing with a variety of emotions. There's got to be some depth, some profundity to the, to the mind, hasn't there, there? Well, I think depth is probably the wrong metaphor, but, um, but there is lots of profundity or com- complexity, I'd say. So I think rather than th- um, thinking that our brains are a sort of giant archive with the solutions to all possible questions, the, the, the full description of all the things we want, all those hidden motivations that we're a bit quiet about, they're all in there written down, uh, and these determine our behavior in a way that we don't fully understand. And sometimes we can peer into the archive, but sometimes the archive's a bit dark, we can't can't see everything in it sometimes bits of the archive might be repressed I think that's the wrong way to think about it I think a more appropriate way to think about the way the brain works is that we are continually sort of extrapolating past experience to deal with an ever-changing world so if we're in a new situation the way the brain copes with this is to think what situations are a bit like this? Where have I been in a situation like this before? Ah, well, I see a few. And rather rather dramatically extrapolating from those few, it'll use the things that it's learned, the way it's interpreted those situations, the way it behaved in those situations, to condition what it's going to do now. So the brain is a very much a, a precedent-based uh, rather, rather, rather than a principle-based system. Rather than having sort of deep principles underlying it, it's rather like legal system. Uh, so the, the common law system is a lovely analogy for the mind. I, I think actually not accidentally, rather a rather beautiful analogy. Because the way the common law works is every time a new case comes up, 
rather than looking back at some great statute, some vast um, sort of uh, outline of the full complexity of the law, all beautifully, uh, beautifully laid out before you, what you actually do is you look back at past cases. You say, well, this case looked a bit like that one, or oh, it was a bit like that one. And then there's a battle to work out, well, which case do we think is most relevant? And you know, do they uh, imply that we come to different conclusions? And then this new case that you've just created now becomes a precedent for the next and the next and the next. So this sort of sequence of cases, this is the nature of the richness, I think, that human, um, human thought consists in. It's not, um, it's not hidden depths of a mysterious kind. It's, it's, essentially, it's all at the surface, um, but, it's the, but the surface is always referring back to past bits of surface. I mean, would I be right in saying that your conclusions appear to run counter to at least two of the great geographers of the human mind, um, Freud and Jung, yes, with the yes. great sort of impenetrable thickets yes. of the id in Freudian terms and the immensity of the um, collective yeah. unconscious in Jung's terms? Yes, no, absolutely. I think those that I am directly opposed to that perspective. Um, and I think, I mean, if you look at the sort of specifics of the, say, let's take the Freudian um, methodology, the, the approach Freud gives is a very good illustration of the amazing creative powers of the mind, um, but mistaken as, as a, a sort of scientific um, uh, analysis. So you, you, the, the way the typical Freudian um, analysis will work is you have, for example, a little bit of dream, a little fragment, and a few surrounding bits of collateral information. Freud will take a look at this and think, ah, I know what's going on here. And he'll give a long and extremely detailed ex explanation, which is, as, a sort of, as it were, as a literary piece, is rather interesting. Um, so you can imagine that there could be that, you know, that this... Um, you know, the 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 the, 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 the headgear of this horse somehow resembles the father, and the father is a figure of you know, uh, who needs to be overcome. And it's a complicated tale. It's, it's told, and it's an interesting tale. And um, so, what Freud's doing there is, I think, something very much well like literature, uh, of a rather imaginative and interesting kind. He's creating a new framework for us to, to create little stories about ourselves. But the illusion is thinking. Um, no, no, I'm not just creating stories. That's what's going on in the mind. And I think one thing that belies the fact that this is um, unlikely to be true is that essentially no two analysts can ever agree on the same interpretation of the same uh, of the same case. So yeah, even Freud's most famous cases have you know, multiple interpretations by multiple people um, because as, as with literary characters, as with our own behavior, all we have are fragments. And with fragments, you can generate all kinds of, you can fill in in many ways. And what are the practical implications of your findings, you know, on the way we interact with each other? Yes, I think I'd, I'd highlight a couple. So I think at a very personal level, I think one of the things that thinking this way helps with is it stops one being too tortured about questions along the lines of, how do I really feel about this? Um, am I really committed to this task, job, person, uh, am I feeling as mu too much grief? Am I feeling enough grief? All of these kind of questions about what's really going on in my head. Uh, or do I really love this person as much as I should do? Do I love one child more than another? All of these questions, I think, are, are questions that sound like the answer is going to somehow lie within you. But if, in fact, it's the case that you live a harmonious and happy relationship with someone and all, it all works sort of very well uh, on a superficial level, it's a, it's a dangerous and fairly, probably fairly hopeless question to, th to ask myself, yes, but am I feeling the right things? If, is there something within me that is somehow missing? I think that's a really dangerous way to think and is actually quite you know, likely to undermine lots of our lives and projects um, because it's, it's sort of, um, 
because once one starts to ask that question, looking within oneself is you can find almost anything. Um, and we're having this discussion at a business school. Are there implications for the way in which we trade, do business yeah. with each other? Well, so that was going to be my second example. So absolutely. Um, so I'm very interested in um, the way in which we understand our, well, for example, our, our preferences, for example, as consumers or employees. What, how do we want to live our lives? What do we want to buy? What do we want to do? And I think the... Um, or indeed, how, how do we value um, things, things like health, the environment? How do we value um, those against material goods, for example, if we're in public policy? And I think uh, 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 the illusion of mental depth, the idea that there are sort of deep answers to every question, as it were, hidden in your, in your brain already, gives one the sense that if only you give people enough questionnaires or experiments or do enough brain imaging, you'll just be able to read this stuff off. And it's stable. So you'll think to yourself, if you're having that mindset, that there really is an answer to how much people value uh, some aspect of the environment or how much they value health versus money, or there's a real answer to whether they prefer Coke or Pepsi or anything else. And, there's, and we just got to find this answer out. And people may not be very sure about the answer, but, and they may be rather bad at telling you it, but it's in there somewhere. And I would say that's a really an illusion, a bit like the illusion of thinking, if I ask you to write a poem and you write one, thinking, I bet that poem was in there already, wasn't it? I wonder if there are any others. To which the answer is no, you created the poem then. You, and so I gave you something to do, and you did it. And you did it as a creative, intelligent human being. If I say, well, um, how, would you, uh, how would you trade off you know, building a small uh, wind farm, which is going to create a few jobs and some clean energy, but on the other hand is going to despoil this landscape to some degree, you know, what's your feeling about that? You'll produce a creative solution to that. You'll produce a narrative explanation. If I ask you on a different day in a slightly different situation with other people around, you'll produce a different one and a different one again and a different one again. And it's not that there's this sort of one true inner um, perspective, which if only we had the right scientific tools or the mar right market research, we could pin down. Now, at one point, you say something that I thought was extremely contentious. Let me put it back mm -hmm. to you. You say, quote, no one at any point in human history has ever been guided by inner beliefs or desires any more than any human being has been possessed by evil spirits or watched over by a guardian angel. What about Gandhi? What about Nelson Mandela? I think it's absolutely true that there are people who are extraordinarily um, and relentlessly and remarkably focused on particular um, objectives and ways of life. So I think it's not at all the case that, um, and it goes back to this sort of question of precedence. There are people who start to live in a particular way, they will follow that through, they will find a consistent path in life and their every action and thought may be guided by trying to continue the projects and, and, and the way of life that they've started in a really remarkably co cogent way. So I'm not imagine, I'm not sort of wanting to imply that we're all sort of airy sort of sprites who can be pushed everywhere by by, by, by um, the sort of people and uh, world around us. But I think thinking about it in terms of being guided by beliefs or guided by desires is, is a mistake. So I, so I don't think a person has beliefs that control them any more than Anna Karenina has beliefs that control her. We can look at that person's life and think, well, that life makes a lot of sense if you imagine this kind of objective, this kind of concern, these kinds of um, assumptions. And one can certainly do that, but that's a retrospective thing. It's not something that's actually driving, it's not the causal mechanism that's driving them forward. But isn't that an act of faith almost? And aren't you talking as someone who believes mm. this system, not as a scientist who can prove it? Well, I think 
the all it attempts to try to pin down um, beliefs or or, or um, desires do tend to be leads to the conclusion that these things are, are very very unstable. So so let me give you a, a very specific and a very simple example. Um, so this is a, a lovely set of experiments done by a former postdoc of mine, but before. He started working on this well before he worked with me, so the credit is entirely his, not mine at all. So this is a chap called Petter Johansson, who works with Lars Hall these days at uh, the University uh, of Lund in, in Sweden. So he has experiments, and I'll give you a, a slightly crazy one. I've met, they all have the same theme. Um, so where you ask people to make a choice, so you give people some, say, jams to taste. And this was done in a real supermarket in Sweden. And people taste various jams, and they say, I think that's my favorite. And now then... You, using a literal, literal magic trick, and most of his experiments involve some sort of magic trick, you then give them the, the, um, the jar to taste against, or have some more of that love that one you liked. But in fact, it's a double-ended jar, and you just twist it over, and to little do they know, they then take the lid off and have a bit more, but it's not the same jam. In fact, it's the jam that they've just rejected. Now, delightfully, first of all, they rarely notice. Apparently, grapefruit, you'll never get away with that. So if you put grapefruit in there, people certainly notice that. But within you know, sort of cherry, strawberry, raspberry, people don't really notice. So they'll taste this jam again, and then they will tell you why they liked it so much. And indeed, although we've done this, we have actually done this together with on faces rather than jams, um, if somebody is tricked in this way, when you get give them the same thing again, the thing that they, they didn't actually say they liked, but... You say, well, you like that? And, you know, tell me why. I'll give you a nice story. And then they will like it more. So when you give it to them again later, they go, oh, yes, I, I, that's really good. I like that one. Um, so it's this very, very strange sense in which we're trying to infer our own preferences. So we have a rough idea of what we like. We certainly might say we definitely don't like grapefruit or definitely grapefruit is very weird. Um, but within a large range, we don't really know what it is we want. And we will we'll, um, create a story um, which leads to the conclusion that this is my favorite and once I've created that story of course that will make me more likely to to fit that in future so I'll think ah oh, it's that one again I like that one I know I like that one I said so I mean you mentioned magic there in a way aren't you a bit of a magician yourself in the sense that you're dismissive I'm quoting mm. here of mm. the common sense view of the mind yes. Yes. Um, how do you mean well I suppose the the common sense view is thinking that the things we talk about when we talk about minds, beliefs, desires, emotions, thinking of these as, as it were, active causal agents, a bit like bits of machinery in the head that actually push us around. And I think the way we should be thinking of them as, is as ways of interpreting our behavior. So rather than thinking, so when I say uh, something like, yeah, I prefer tea to coffee, um, it's easy to think, I must have a preference in my head, and that preference is is pushing me towards the coffee, away from the tea. But in fact, I think it's much more appropriate to think, well, no, I have a pattern of behavior. Um, and that pattern of behavior is probably fairly arbitrary, but it doesn't really matter. I, I've just become habituated to choosing A, not B. And if you're looking at me from the outside, or indeed if I'm looking at my own behavior, I'll think, oh, I seem to seem to prefer A. Well, that's that's the preference then. That's the, that pattern of ten, that tendency to choose one thing or another. That's, you know, that is it. It's not that there's a, there's a it's, it's a way of, it's a sort of illusion in which one's thinking that um, by describing uh, behavior, by, uh, by describing patterns in behavior, one must somehow be um, 
picking out, the, as it were, the hidden causes. They're, kind of lurk, they're sort of lurking somewhere in the brain. I, I mean, that's, uh, that sounds rather depressing, though, and possibly oh. even counterintuitive. I mean, when you think of us with all our experiences, mm. our emotions, our fears, hopes, desires, and all the rest of it, and yes. then to conclude from that that we really are one-dimensional at the end of it all, after all. Well, I think when we're, we're layered. So each experience shapes the next. So each we're, we're playing the playing the present and on the, as it were on a theme of the past and the past is very rich and complex and that's what makes each of us unique and individual that our layers of experience are different one to the next and of course that also means that it's hard to change so it's not the case that um, we can find a mistaken belief or a, 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 an inappropriate desire and think ah I'm, that's where my problems are coming from. I'll just change that, and then I'm going to be different now. Um, so, you know, thinking, I must stop smoking. Thinking, I might, that, 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 that desire's got to change. I must stop desiring cigarettes. You, you just can't, you can't do that. Um, so you, it's mu you're much more um, uh, a collection of, of patterns of, of behavior and experience, which are very difficult to, to shift, though, though shiftable. Um, it's a bit like, I think, uh, think about the way improvisation works. If you think about improvisation in theatre, or in fact, even more easily easy to um, think about, is, is, is in jazz. So when someone's learning to improvise, they're learning patterns of, of uh, you know, it could be drama, it's going to be speech or actions, um, or in jazz it's going to be um, music, pieces of, um, sort of melodic snippets, and they're going to generate more and more and more of these, and they're going to become increasingly complicated. Each one's built on the last. And they'll produce a repertoire which is unique to them. Now, they can, we can control that repertoire to some degree. I can think, oh, I don't like that sound of that. I want to do more of this. So I can try to, for example, if I was a saxophonist, I could try to move in the direction of Charlie Parker. But I'm never going to, never going to get very close to Charlie Parker because Charlie Parker's got this incredible, rich set of improvisational uh, habits which you know, no one really can figure out how to emulate, if only they could. Um, but on the other hand, it's not that I'm powerless. I can't become anything, but I'm not powerless. And I think in some ways that's quite a liberating thought. It's, it's not that I'm sort of trapped if I feel, for example, that my life isn't going well or I, I, I don't think or feel as I wish, I wish I did. It's not that I'm, as it were, trapped by a, set of, a subterranean hidden set of, 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 of uh, beliefs or desires or motives which are wrong but somehow uncontrollable. Um, it's the, the, the problems are, as it were, right in front of us, but they're, because our current behavior is shaped by the you know, the great trail of the past. There's, you know, changing one's behavior is a slow, painful process, like learning a new skill, like learning to, to improvise. It's difficult, but we can actually change ourselves sometimes at least, but slowly. But in saying we have no hidden depths, aren't you ignoring what mind-altering drugs have discovered, you know, e experiments mm. with mescaline, or even hypnosis, yeah, that they are yeah. a doorway to a profundity that you would claim doesn't exist? Yes, I, I think that is a mistaken in interpretation of those experiences. So, um, I, yes, the, the view of mystical experiences or um, experiences of, uh, of, of psycho psychoactive drugs as opening a door into an inner world, I think is, is a mistake in the same way that thinking of dreaming as a door into an inner world is a mistake. In fact, I think what's going on there is one's changing the way we're interpreting the actual world, and we're also creating, um, is, is changing the, the way in which one's creating um, you know, visual images and, and narratives and so on. So it's rather thinking, it's change, it's, it, it's a, it, you're doing more momentary creation, more improvisation, but you're doing it a bit differently. Um, rather than there's an inner reality and you've just found a, a sort of a, a doorway into it. So that the way we experience our lives, the way we live our lives can be enormously variable. I think the 
the flatness um, of the mind is something that's probably pretty universal. Because, I mean, you say at one point, the mind is flat with no hidden depths, as mm. we've been discussing. Mental depth is an illusion, mm. and that we are, mm. or the brain is, a consummate yeah. improviser. What do you mean by that? Yes, I suppose there's a sort of magic conjuring trick that the brain plays on us, and the conjuring trick works like this. Um, if you ask me a question about you know, what I think about something and why I have a certain belief, say it's a, it's a political argument, uh, I'll find myself giving a justification. And if you then counter with some um, perfectly reasonable uh, counter, I'll think, oh, yes, well, I, I've got an answer to that too, and another answer, and another answer. But, the, um, but these answers are things that I'm creating as I'm going along. Now, what I might imagine is I might think, oh, no, uh, those answers are just what I believe. I believe them before you asked me. They were these beliefs were just sort of sitting there, ready to be, uh, as it were, downloaded. And I think that is because we're so fluent, we're so amazingly good at generating answers to just about any question that one is one is asked. Then we have the sense that the answers are already pre-stored. And I think that's interesting in another way too, because it also applies to questions we ask ourselves. So if we think to ourselves, yeah. Why did I buy that car or why did I take that job? You know, sure enough, out comes an answer. In fact, sometimes out come several answers which aren't quite the same answer. Or if you ask yourself on different occasions, you don't always give the, give the same answer. So I think we, but, but, but the very facility, the readiness with which we do that, I think fools us into thinking, oh, yes, we're just reading this off. It's a kind of giant mental book of all thoughts that I've ever had or ever, ever will have, all my desires, all my motives. It's all in there. And are these illusions of operating according to these hidden depths, are they dangerous for us? Uh, well, I think they can be dangerous, yes. I think they can be. Um, for example, I think, as I mentioned before, one danger is thinking that one ought to have certain inner experiences which one may or may not feel one does have. Um, but similarly, I'm also thinking that um, the way to help oneself deal with difficult things is to look inward rather than outward. So, so in a, in a very sort of superficial but um, you know, easy to explain example of this would be something like um, stage fright. So if you're going to be on stage doing, you know, doing something or other, performing, talking, um, uh, this is something that leads to nerves. So before you go on, you feel nervous. Um, now, if one has the hidden depth perspective, you might find yourself thinking, my goodness, am I terrified? Oh, I think I may be. Oh, my goodness, I am. And then before you know it, you've interpreted your probably quite understandable keyed upness as being terror, potential panic um, might, might be coming. You start to speculate that this is possibly going to sh stop you functioning. And this, you know, this, this is something that can, can sort of build in a really nasty loop. If, on the other hand, one thinks, ah, yes, um, there's some nervousness. Well, that could mean absolutely anything, um, probably. It's you know, typical nervousness before something like this. There's no question of looking at it closely, peering at it more and more intently and thinking, now, come on, are you terror or are you mere nervousness? In fact, I think that very, that very um, process of introspection is very dangerous because the more you look, the more amplified and the more threatening this whole thing becomes. So finally, how would reading your research, reading your book, change people's lives? Well, I hope it will help people feel, and it certainly helped me feel, that we're more open, creative, and um, more in charge of our own lives than we might realize. We're not perfectly in charge. It's not, not every jazz, jazz saxophonist has the freedom to become Charlie Parker. There's, you know, the, 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 it's, we can't magically transform ourselves um, into, into anything we want. But we can, step by step, um, 
change our lives in a way that establishes new patterns of thought, new habits, new ways of living, um, which will gradually change us in a way that we might prefer. Nick Jater, thank you for sharing your thoughts. I'm Trevor Barnes, and this has been a core podcast for Warwick Business School.